Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Mark Scandrett, thank you so much for being back. We are doing episode two of Shiny Happy People, and this one is a doozy. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I remember when I watched this with my kids, like the first episode, we're like, oh, wow. And then we get into the second one, and it just name checks all these things that are so common to fundamentalist religious experience, hierarchy anti-science, prohibitions about games and toys and music, policing women's appearance, sexual repression and secret addictions to pornography and behavior motivated by fear of punishment or fear of hell, rigid gender roles, corporal punishment, courting. We could spend an hour and a half on any of those. Yeah, I mean, okay, so just brief reminder to to listeners what we're doing, or in case they missed the first one. So we are doing, there are four episodes of the Amazon web series or or docuseries, Amazon Prime Video docuseries, Shiny Happy People, Duggar Family Secrets. So this is the Duggar Family, 16 and counting, 18 and counting, 19 and counting, and their links with Bill Gothard and the Institute for Basic Life Principles, which is basically a fundamentalist Christian homeschooling and sort of all of life sort of one-stop shop for keeping a fundamentalist 
Christian family going, discipline, education, you know, sex, you name it. And Bill Gothard, the kind of movement that he spearheaded really set the tone for the Duggar family. Of course, Josh Duggar famously in the news in more recent years for uh, sexual abuse of his daughters. And then later, I think you meant, you meant to say his sisters, sorry, his his sisters, not his daughters. Yes. His, his younger sisters. And then what we're doing is we're also trying a thing where we put the first half of our conversation on the main feed, second half on the patron feed. If you'd like to hear the second half of these conversations, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. But if you listen to this show, you've heard me talk about that a million times. So you mentioned a lot. Let's go through a little a little bit of what this episode two covers. In addition, we get a bit more about Gothard and the IBLP, Institute for Basic Life Principles. Like you said, we get the umbrellas of authority. We get a bunch about purity culture and sexuality. I would say what we get in this episode is a peek into what more fully patriarchal cultures a la Iran or ancient Near East, you know, in 500 BC, what these cultures might look like if they were embedded in a pluralist modern country like the United States. That's like one way of saying what this episode is about. Mm -hmm. We learn a lot about the discipline models that they use. We get a lot about homeschooling. You were talking about kind of panic over evil being brought into the house via secular art and objects. And of course, we get more about the Duggars and the Josh Duggar scandals how that was handled with a PR firm, the way that his uh, elder of his younger sisters were sort of pressured into participating in this big PR exoneration scheme that doesn't end up really working. So like last week, I want to start off with any of our PSAs. So this is sort of stuff that gets brought up in the episode where we feel like it might be good for the public to have like a factual or evidence-based take on this because... Either maybe someone gets something a little wrong that speaks on mic. Mostly today, it's like there's just stuff that comes up here that I feel like I have a sense of, but I don't know that a lot of people have a lot of clarity. I don't even know that I had that much clarity. So I have a couple. Do you have any PSAs that you want to do at the top? No, you do a great job with this. Okay, okay. Well, (laughs) we'll hear more of your voice soon, Mark. My first PSA, so I've really got two. I'll do the short one first. The short one is, There is a point where they are singing, why should I not be put in hell to suffer for all time? The entire Duggar family kind of children (laughs) band is singing this. And there are two to three year olds singing these lyrics, right? I think it's Jill talks about, or one of the, one of the talking heads says hell was very vivid for us. It was not an abstract concept. And this actually ties directly into one of the types of, of potentially spiritually abusive experiences on my spiritual harm and abuse scale. The type of abuse is called embracing violence. And the idea is that in some spiritually abusive communities, I should say in some religious communities that are perhaps likely to spiritually abuse their congregants, their, their members, there is a culture of like violence is just sort of a part of what God uses Violence is in effect good because it is one of God's main tools. That's kind of the philosophical backdrop. And the way that that presents itself specifically is you get things like abusive behavior is justified via scripture. You get things like 
teaching vivid descriptions of Satan, hell, demons, the end of the world to children at developmentally inappropriate ages where they don't have the capacity to absorb that kind of information with a bit of buffering or to understand that this is a text that someone wrote, or this is a belief that we hold that maybe not everyone holds, or here's one way of thinking, like you do it too early and then therefore it's all literal. And that can be traumatizing in the very literal kind of neurological sense of trauma and experience that our nervous system, including our brain, doesn't know how to process at the time. And in that case, it doesn't know how to process it because we're too young, right? So we're just not developed enough. Listeners know this is the type of spiritual abuse that I was mostly subjected to around end times teaching at too young of an age. And just seeing two to three-year-olds singing about deserving hell to suffer for all time really brought that home to me. It itself was vivid. That's a good word for it. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. That's my little, that's my brief PSA. Uh, One of the ways I narrate my spiritual awakening was how I got introduced to the a version of the gospel when I was two and a half or three years old. I was sitting behind the laundromat in a car with my sister. My mom was inside and we were listening to Christian radio and a preacher was doing the hellfire and brimstone thing. We were quite disturbed about it. And when my mom came back to the car, we asked her about it and she said, yep, yeah, that's something like, yes, that's true. You're going to hell. <laughs> and wow. And the message I got, and I can't, you know, I'm going to like, just to kind of protect the, my, my parents on this, just say, I don't know what they said, but what I remember the message getting was yeah. Yeah. three-year-old boys are on their way to hell and God's kind of dangling me over the fires, but Jesus was the replacement for me. And if I just believe the right things about him and agree with these the certain statements, God will, you know, remove that and I can I can go to heaven someday instead. And I remember when I said those words, you know, that that prayer of belief, yeah. how excited my parents were. Mm-hmm. Like they I'd never seen them as excited uh as that morning when I kind of whispered those words with their their prompting. And later on I reflected on it, I thought. I think what what it did for me inside was go, wow, first of all, God, G-O-D is not safe if God wants to send a three-year-old boy to hell. And I did my business with God. I said the magic words. I, now I don't want anything to do with G-O-D. It doesn't sound like a very kind person, anyone that I'd want to know very well. And I think that's the experience of so, so many uh, people who have grown up with those sorts of messages. It cuts off any kind of spiritual curiosity. Yeah. It's the ultimate carrot and stick, but the stick is literally infinite and as bad Mm -hmm. as you can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. And the carrot is dangled there. God loves you. Jesus loves you so much, but to the extent that you take the stick seriously, and I do think there are real personality differences there. I think that it is not uniform Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that if I push back at all on some of the people who speak in the documentary, I'm not pushing back against their experience or their pain or their trauma, but there are occasionally times where 
the reasoning gets a little slippery and causality and mm-hmm. we get a little over inclusive. It's not true that everyone who is taught these things latches onto them. But for instance, you did. And mm-hmm. in my experience, I've talked about this before. For some reason, someone told me once saved, always saved. I don't know why they told me that. I believed it. I'm kind of egotistical. That might be why. <laughs> and like, you know, naturally so. And so that never worried me. I never thought I might go to hell, even though I technically got these teachings and stuff, Mm -hmm. but I I was sure that my salvation stuck. What I was worried about was missing out on this life. Mm -hmm. And that still was traumatizing. But yeah, there's, there is a real, like if you, to the extent that you take that stick seriously, which is infinite. So it can, that stick can hold literally an infinite amount of your own anxiety and dread Mm -hmm. because it's infinite. And then where do you go from there? Like you, you have to find ways to put out that fire and then, it, and the system gives you ways, right? It, it mm-hmm. tells you what to do and then to have quote the peace of Christ or whatever, you know, whatever lingo they're going to use. But it is, it is quite sort of emotionally violent. If I can, if I can yeah. maybe haphazardly throw that term out. And Dan, as you were talking, I started making a connection between the understanding of the God story that I got and the corporal punishment approach that I experienced and that many others have yeah. where as a parent, I love you and it's my job to punish you <laughs> and uh, having those two things so closely linked. Yes. I want to go to punishment. I want to, I want to hold off. I want to do one more kind of topic. And then my, my second and last PSA is about yeah. spanking and punishment. But I think that, if we want to think of this in terms of what's logically prior, I think we actually linger here on this idea of three-year-olds deserving hell. So mm-hmm. listeners, you know, listeners over the last year or so may have gotten tired of me bringing this up. I've probably brought it up three or four times in the podcast, but I am unendingly interested in this idea. And a, a friend of a friend who I, I chatted with brought it up to me. I, I can't take credit for it, but it's the idea that, we could have two separate assumptions about our children when it comes to their faith and camp a, which is very clearly uh, delineated in this episode is the most important thing about children is that they are born with a sinful will and they need to be shown that that's the case and that there is a salvific plan for them despite that sinful nature. And What I liked about this episode is it actually goes further in than just, well, you got to accept Christ because hell awaits you. All the discipline stuff is actually, diabolically so, a more full fleshing out of that assumption, that Camp A. But Camp B is an alternative, which is that children are born with every capacity they need to begin a relationship with God. That is appropriate to their age. And there's, you know, really good research backing this up from Lisa Miller out of Columbia. And I think that the way that Jesus interacts with children in the gospels is certainly mm-hmm. much more indicative of Camp B than than Camp A. Nonetheless, Camp A has been the primary assumption uh, for conservative Christianity over the years and certainly fundamentalist Christianity. That's maybe, in fact, we might even call it like one of the hallmarks of fundamentalism. And that difference, the way that those two different assumptions then play out practically in a life, I think it helps explain 
so much of what we see in this episode and a fundamentalist approach more broadly, I'm sure you're going to have thoughts about this distinction here. I'd love to hear them. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think the thing a three-year-old needs to hear is things like, what a wonderful world we live in. Yeah. Maybe there's a creator who brought this world into existence and loves us, delights in, mm-hmm. in, in bringing us good things that we can be live in wonder and gratitude about. Yeah. You know, to, to, to say yes to life might be the developmentally appropriate thing. In a previous life, I was a children's evangelist starting when I was 13. I was schooled by an old organization called Child Evangelism Fellowship on how to present the gospel to kids in a way that would probably be in agreement with the IBLP message. Wow. So I, I had to make five, I had to make eight points. And one of the most important is original sin and going to hell. This is the eighties and nineties. Parents would let their kids go to a neighbor's house and have somebody like me come and tell them they were going to hell. Um, (laughs) Even at that time, I was like, I don't know if this is the point. And I could see that I could manipulate kids into saying that prayer. Like if, oh, if yeah. they, and, and for a variety of reasons, maybe it was fear of hell. Some of it might've been that they wanted to please me as the older person. Mm-hmm. I'd watch parents who would say, let me land the plane with them. You, you gave them the message, but I want to pray the prayer with them so I can be there to be the person who does that. And so there's a lot of, desire to please the parents by by making those declarations of belief that cannot possibly be understood by a three-year-old. So I try to do better myself with when my daughter came along, I was beginning a deconstruction and I thought the punchline isn't isn't hell. The punchline's not even sin. It's we're created for relationship yeah. with our creator. But I still emphasized like the afterlife was still a big part of it for me. And so I remember showing my daughter gold pictures of heaven and saying, God made us, God loves us. God wants us to be with God in this paradise. And I wrote about this in my first book, Soul Graffiti. My daughter burst into tears. Like the worst thing she could imagine was this weird guy with long hair and a beard wearing a bathrobe taking her away from mom and dad to some unknown place. Mm. And uh, like, like it was interesting for me to hear how she was interpreting what I was saying. It didn't mean the same thing to me yeah. at my cognitive level. Right. But we could not for months, we had to hide all the Jesus books in the house because it, her three-year-old mind got the impression this, um, creepy guy in a in a robe wanted to take her away from from her, the people she loved and depended on the most my goodness wow uh okay i have a lot of questions my first question is when you watched this one with your kids i you know there there's a lot of stuff about discipline and the homeschooling mm-hmm. and all that stuff and so i'm kind of drawing more of the theological stuff out, right? Because I'm interested in that. Have you talked with them more recently about kind of this aspect of what's the gospel and, and how they understood it as a kid and how they understand it now? Yeah, absolutely. I regularly went back as 
my daughter got older and said, we tried this with you and you taught, you helped us see that that was not helpful to you. Wow. Um, We were parroting, (laughs) we were parroting the things that we'd been taught and told would be helpful, Yeah, but we could see by your reaction, it didn't sound like good news to you. And yeah, it, it wasn't good news to you. Wow. I, I don't know how much you want to speak for her in a public setting, yeah. but to the extent that you feel comfortable, I, I'm curious what her, you know, how she took yeah. that or if that, if that landed for her or what? I mean, we, we kept up a dialogue. I was going through seminary and de- doing my own deconstruction while my kids were preschoolers and grade school age. So we did want to include scripture in their upbringing and we memorized yeah. the 10 commandments and um, the Shema and some Psalms and things like that. So there was an ongoing conversation, like instead of presenting the Bible in a simple way, we tried to problematize it a bit and and say, here's one way you could see that passage. Here's another way. Mom and I wrestle with why God seems to condone violence in the Hebrew Bible. I remember starkly when my daughter was eight years old, she came up to me and she said, dad, I know you're into the Bible, but it's not really my thing. She said, because most of the characters are men and all the books (laughs) were written by men. And she's like, as a female, I just can't relate. So it's not for me. (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh. But one other thing that stands out to me was around sin. And I had to reflect on that as a, for myself, as well as for my kids. I think as it was presented to me, Sin is like a legal category, you know, a judicial term. And that's very abstract and difficult for a child to understand, you know, that I've broken a law or violated some ethical principle. And to tell a child that they are a sinner, I don't think it makes any sense to them. But as my kids were coming up, like one time, one of my kids was like, it's not fair my brother gets to go to a birthday party today with his friend and they're going to see a movie in the theater, like uh, not at home in the theater. And the child was really upset. And I said, well, let me, can I remind you that yes, like two days ago, your best friend and their parents took you out to the best restaurant in San Francisco. And then you got front row seats at the Lion King Broadway musical. Good things happen to you. That's why I'm, I'm just trying to remind you of that. And so what if we live in a world where good things can come to you and good things can come to your brother and you can, instead of being jealous or envious or resentful, you can just have some gratitude. And I asked the child, what you seem to be experiencing is something I would call envy or jealousy. What's it like for you inside right now? How are you feeling? I feel terrible. I don't like, I don't like how I feel inside. And I said, well, that's. Uh, an old word for that is sin. Wow. Like you're not you're not living in the good reality yeah that you're created for. You've got a distorted sense of yours yourself and your situation. And the journey of life is learning to notice those things and to come back to reality. I I I am like fundamentally in William James's dichotomy between 
sick soul religion and healthy minded religion. Mm-hmm. I, there's a bit of sick soul in me. It's probably still the the primary. It's the part of me that loves Kierkegaard. It's the mm-hmm. part of me that feels like compelled to make public work like this podcast is that, you know, like good religion does need to diagnose decently yeah. accurately the, the evil parts of mm-hmm. human existence. And so I'm, I'm kind of always on the lookout for ways to do that, that are not themselves damaging yeah. or abusive or whatever, but there's also can be a tendency to paper over all of that. Right. And that's, maybe a trauma response for some people. It's a very understandable mm-hmm. response, yeah. but ultimately for me, it's not, it's not a satisfying worldview uh, because like <laughs> there's a fucking darkness, a lot of yeah. darkness, a lot of places you look and you know, maybe that's a, maybe that's a bridge into some of the, the discipline and punishment stuff. So uh, there's a lot to cover here from this episode, but I want to make sure to get in my spanking PSA yes. before we move to the second half and, yeah. and leave the main feed. So that was a slightly clunky, but here we go. Spanking. Okay. This is not only about spanking in the episode, but, but I thought spanking would be a good thing to talk about because it's something that a lot of us experienced. I'm almost 40 and spanking was essentially a gl- more or less globally accepted form of child discipline through the 1980s with not that many notable exceptions. It was understood widely for thousands of years to be a non-harmful way of changing children's behavior. But starting in the 90s, research began to show this to be an unfounded claim. By the late 90s, the American Association of Pediatrics recommended against it. And I'm about to explain why in 2018, they they finally updated it and just said it's uh, it's not helpful. Don't do it. But it's worth remembering that if you're like 25 or older, maybe, maybe even 20, almost none of the following research was available to your parents. Okay. So let's, you know, let, let's just bear that in mind. Mm-hmm. The first research started finding that other short-term punishments like timeouts were just as effective in stopping behaviors quickly. So that was the first chink in the armor because spanking does in the short term stop a behavior. And so it seems like it worked. Then it became clear that spanking is actually associated with less compliance in the long term. So, okay, there are better, there are just as good of short term options that are not violent. And then when we look a little longer out, the kids who get spanked actually tend to be less compliant in a couple years Here's a quote from a a Psychology Today article. Spanking likely doesn't work as a form of punishment because it causes physical pain, leading to fear and confusion in children, which could in turn interfere when the child is trying to learn the rule or message that a parent is attempting to convey. And there's a really good example of this in the film where that one pastor guy is like very creepily spanking this kid. Obviously, he's doing it very softly. It looks a lot more like he's just pederassing, frankly, fondling him. him. Yep. Uh, but what he's at least saying that he's doing is he's also saying like, you're a blessing to God. Like, like, you know, he's, he's speaking all these like purportedly positive words about God over the child as he's hitting him. And the kind of nervous system confusion of that, uh, mm-hmm. these days is not hard for us to, to sort of see the, 
the conflict there. I think we have a lot more knowledge about how our fight, flight, or freeze system works. Like that stuff has become so much more clear to sort of the average educated American than it was in, in the eighties and nineties. But, you know, so that actually gets in the way of, of learning like the, the kids, they're not going to absorb the same message because their fight, flight or freeze system is acting. And now the front part of their brain, the part that's going to store information and make decisions is actually not that active because they're afraid. So that's mm-hmm. one mechanistic un- understanding of why spanking doesn't work. If you want to get kind of nerdy about it. Third and most concerning research wise, spanking has been linked to increases in negative behaviors like physical aggression This has been attested in meta reviews of multiple studies, including longitudinal studies that check the same kids over multiple years. Again, from psychology today, by watching parents hit children are likely learning that hitting is acceptable behavior and a permissible form of punishment. On top of that, we already know from more than 50 years of research that watching others behave aggressively can cause children to behave more aggressively as well. Kind of common sense, but there's a lot of Mm -hmm. empirical backing for that. On top of leading to more aggressive behavior in children, spanking is also associated with more mental health problems, lower self-esteem, cognitive difficulties, and more negative relationships between children and their parents. That's why the AAP in 2018 was like, just don't spank at all. That's our recommendation. And not a single study to date shows that physical punishment is associated with anything positive for children. Now, a common response to this briefly is, well, I was spanked. I turned out okay. In fact, that's true of me, but that applies to me, not to a statistically average child. And I hate to break it to you. Your child is likely to be statistically average. That's just how probabilities work. So (laughs) I encourage you parents. I I imagine most listeners of this show don't spank, but you know, this stuff, I I feel like even reading that article, there was information in there. I didn't know the sequence of research events. I, I couldn't have told you the particular things it was associated with. I just knew the sort of accepted headline, which is don't spank. Um, and I actually found it really helpful to kind of read about that. And I thought that's a good PSA to mm-hmm. put in the first half of the episode. Any responses mm-hmm. to spanking in particular? I was spanked similar to the manner portrayed in the documentary of this dialogue. I'm doing this cause I love yeah. you here's an opportunity for us to reconcile because you broke with my authority. Oh my Um, gosh. Yeah. And, and I know a lot, a lot of the people that I've talked to about this documentary, that scene was one of the most triggering for them because it brought back that confusion of my, my parent loves me, but they're hitting me. I started out doing that with my kids and just noticed I wasn't getting the kind of results that I, yeah. I wanted. It my, it was affecting my, I remember my daughter looking at me after I slapped her hand with a look of terror in her eyes. You're my papa. What did you just yeah. do? And it was hard for her to make any kind of connection between the the slap on the wrist and what she'd been doing at the time. Um, and so we eventually just eliminated physical punishment from from the parenting but as you were talking i'm also reflecting on maybe what physical punishment did for me as a child in terms of how i treated younger siblings and if bigger people get to have power over and actually when when i really did feel invited into the jesus way as a 12 or 13 year old one of my first 
you know, I said, I want to follow Jesus. And the, the connection was, I need to stop being mean to my sisters because I think I'd learn this way of like, I'm bigger. It's kind of fun to have power over and do things um, both either psychologically or physically that demonstrate that power over a sibling. And some of the largest trauma I've, I've heard some people have experienced is not from their parents, but from older siblings and what was allowed to take place that wasn't supervised. I'm just going to put a pin in something that we should get to in the second half, which is this idea that they're, you know, males having power and mastery over blank people, mm-hmm. skills, hunting. You know, I, I don't know. The reason that's going in the second half is because it's more speculative. But I think yeah. there's some interesting stuff in this episode to give us, I don't know, something to chew on and to think about things like Joe Rogan or, you know, the Huberman Lab and these kind of like, um, mm-hmm. you know, not not only male focused, but often kind of more male focused, like mastery I don't know. And and you, I wonder, and I don't know, and this is not my area of expertise, like how much of that is sort of built in evolutionarily again, for me, always on a bell curve, not, not for every individual, but for, for Mm -hmm. the statistically average male and, and what are kind of healthy outlets for men who do have that kind of built in. So that's Mm -hmm. a, that's a pin for later that, that that's definitely a second half of the conversation because it's very speculative, but I wanted to reply to you with, one thing that comes up in the episode is what's called breaking their will in the Gothard method. Mm-hmm. And there is particularly this, this blanket training where you put mm-hmm. an infant on a, an infant that can, I guess, crawl and reach. So maybe we're talking like a five, like a four to eight month old or something like that would be the early, yep. the earliest you could do it. And then you put a toy, something that that child already associates positively with this is the weird part for to me because you, you put a toy, you, something that they want, and they go try and crawl for it, and you kind of smack them when they go off the blanket. And the idea is that, and again, this is back to that foundational column A assumption about a person yeah. that they must come to not just understand, but you're actually, in, in the Gothard method, you are doing your child a favor by breaking them of their willfulness as early as possible so that they can Mm -hmm. submit to God's authority and then whoever else's authority, and then they can have a godly life. And, and you're using essentially psychology and reinforcement kind of classical psychology, uh, Pavlovian even to teach this kid that like, if mom and dad set a boundary of the blanket, then it doesn't matter. I, I can't go past it. This, understandably is kind of one of the things that people will bring up the most often about this movement as being fucking insane, dr- draconian. I, mean, I don't know what the language is for it. Mm-hmm. Did you have any experience? Do you know, as a kid, were you guys tempted to try this with your own kids? A- any thoughts about that? Blanket yeah, thing? I, I thankfully I didn't do it with my yeah. own kids, but um, it was part of the culture of the family. I grew up in that like discipline is not just about, Hey, you need to be safe and you need to treat other people with respect. There were these tests of obedience. Do what I say because I'm the parent uh, or you'll be punished. And I think what, you know, developmentally, when I reflect back, 
it's good for short term getting getting a child to do what you want but as we develop we need to like understand the logic of why one behavior is better than another and internalize that and if your only tool for moral development is fear of punishment it's not really or shame it doesn't end up being ultimately very effective but it fits theologically because for a bill gothard or a jim bob duggar yeah. They are under God's authority and the God that they believe in is terrifying, but simultaneously loving it's, it's disorganized. And that God says, do what I say because I'm God. And so then they, it's not like, it's not like they can draw a clear connection between God's love and the thing God's asking. They they try their best. Mm -hmm. They, they, they honestly twist themselves into theological pretzels, trying to explicate Mm -hmm. how this is somehow a good God. Right. But ultimately it is arbitrary and the, and the stick is infinite as we were talking about earlier. And Mm -hmm. so the model there, so then, okay, of course my wife and my kids have to do what I say simply because I say it, because that's why I have to do what God says. Mm -hmm. It's not primarily because God's calling me to flourishing, though they would say that God's calling them to flourishing. It's primarily because the alternative is literally the worst thing imaginable. And violence mm-hmm. is a part of that in the Bible. And it, again, it's this embracing violence, this this type of potential spiritual abuse where, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the world we live in. Uh, you can even understand briefly like ev- evolutionary reasons for that because the world is violent and you can sort of understand why people, yeah. especially people with rough lives, would, would find that plausible. I talked to one of my parents about this documentary and the one thing they really doubled down on was the essential evil of children and the need to break their will. It goes deep. We had a back and forth and I said, you know, there are some things that children are developmentally able to do and aren't able to do. So when you put a moral lens on every behavior, like walking, you know, crawling off the blanket, it's very confusing. And I could sense coming up inside of me. And I've talked to a couple of my siblings about this afterwards too. My child heart saying, I know I wasn't a bad kid and I know I wasn't trying to do evil every time I was yeah. punished, but, but it came with that. And I, I, now I'm curious about the level of shame that I carry and I've had to work through in life. It's a great question. That it comes from every act of not doing what parents said, yeah. being a moral act of guilt um, and what that, what that does to the person. Absolutely. That's a great question. There's one more thing I, I, I want to get into this first half of our conversation that's bordering on a public service announcement, but it, it's really, it's some psychoeducation, as we say, in the therapy field. I wanted to contrast this break their will approach with the form of child discipline therapy that I am somewhat trained in. I, I haven't done like a full on in-person training. I'm not like certified, but I, I've done a web training and I have uh, mm-hmm. done some of this with with clients. It's called parent-child interaction therapy. Uh, and actually, to do it the proper way, you have to have a specific clinic set up where there's like an earpiece and you're watching the kid play. And so I, I don't have that level of training, but I understand the principles of it. And I teach some of the skills to parents uh, for whom their child is my client, right? These are like five mm-hmm. to eight-year-olds who have emotional outburst issues, discipline issues, compliance issues. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I do want to say like, I am of the opinion. And I think most therapists are that like compliance with parents is important. If you have pure chaos, uh, that is generally not mm-hmm. in a child's best interest. The parents do know more about the world than the child. Right. And so mm-hmm. compliance matters. And what we don't want to say contra to this, these, this fundamentalist bullshit is like, who, who gives a shit, you know, give them, give them, hand them their kite and, and let them run, run off. Right. Yeah. Like that's not, that's probably not good parenting. And what PCIT focuses on, which I think is so cool is first of all, it's, of course it's nonviolent. And the main stick in, in PCIT is, uh, is timeouts because what the timeouts do is they represent a break in loving attention. And what mm-hmm. this form of therapy and by the way, other evidence-based parenting approaches to that sort of overlap with this, like one, two, three magic, for instance, another thing we use at our clinic, the number one lever a parent has with their child is their loving attention to the child. That is the number one thing that children desperately want and need from their parents. Notice already how this is breaking from the the mm-hmm. theological and sort of psychological underpinning of, mm-hmm. of the of the Gothard stuff. So what we do with a timeout is we deprive them of that loving attention for three minutes and then we give them that attention back. And like we're very clear. And and the and then in the first part of before you even do the timeouts, you basically train the parents on how to, to even more effectively communicate that loving attention to their children. And there's, you know, we don't have to get in the weeds about it, but there are these basically you play with them in a certain way that shows that you're really listening to them and watching what they're doing and you're mm-hmm. narrating what they're doing and you're not parenting them, quote unquote. You're not you're not directing them or asking them questions. It's literally the opposite of this stuff, right? You are just coming alongside them and you build up this rapport, you build up this loving, trusting relationship so that when it is time for you to ask for compliance, they feel loved and supported and attended to. And then they're still going to disobey you sometimes. And then you have the time, you know, and then you have these methods, but like, mm-hmm. my God, it's, it's so opposite and it's evidence and research based. And I do these skills sometimes when I'm playing with my son, just to sort of reinforce that loving relationship with him. And it totally works. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. just, I'm both so grateful for it and so saddened for so many children and friends of mine and whoever mm-hmm. who have, who grew up with the op with the literally the polar opposite and all baptized in the language of the Bible. So that's my mm-hmm. final kind of PSA thing. Any responses to that? Well, and I, th- uh, I'll take this theological, like, I think the trajectory of scripture is towards a attachment to the Trinity. Oh, interesting. This is a relational universe, and the goal is intimacy between beings. Mm, and I love that. so you see this with Jesus saying, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. Servants don't know the master's business, but I've intimately walked with you, and I want you to experience everything I've experienced. I have fellowship with the Father, the parent God, and I want... I want you to have the same kind of connection. And, you know, John's uh, writing particularly gets at this mystical sense of Trinitarian 
community that we're invited wow. into. And I think it also connects with what I see as general shifts in parent-child relationships that seem to be evolving where, Dan, you and I grew up in a culture or a time when obedience to parents was the main goal for many people and not intimacy, not relationality. And so many people I know my age or older, once they left home, psychologically, they left a lot of connection with parent because it and and um it was difficult for parents of of that generation to shift from authority relate based yeah. relationship to peer-based relationship and i hear the i hear the heart longing in so many of my friends to say i i i desire to have a connection with my parents but they they're inflexible and they can't shift to being a peer Whereas I notice for most people my age and younger, the goal of parenting is relational intimacy. To eventually become a peer. You're, you're not a peer when they're young, yeah. but you're kind yeah. of, as they become teenagers and then especially as they get to college mm -hmm. age and stuff, you're really trying to, you, it's almost like now it's more accepted that your job is to eventually become almost like a mentor peer type of a thing yeah. and not so much of a, an authority over kind of a role. Yes. And that's a really good sort of positive change throughout broader society. Yep. Okay. Before yep. we I switch over to uh, the patron only feed, Mark, you mentioned your book briefly and I, I should have said more earlier in the episode about kind of what you're up to, but, but what are you up to and where can people connect with you if, if they're going to peace out here on the main feed? Yeah. You can find my work at markscandret.com or reimagine.org. Um, I'm passionate about integral Christian spirituality, the the practical details of, you know, how the teachings of Jesus hit the, the everyday messy details of life. So I do some coaching and we run some labs and I write on that topic kind of at the intersection of spirituality and psychology. Fantastic. And uh, after this break on the patron feed, we are going to talk about more about authority, the transfer of authority from of the daughter to the husband. Yeah, uh, it, uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about and we're going to talk about some of the sexual abuse uh, and grooming language used in the documentary. Uh, we haven't really gotten into any of that stuff yet. There's probably even more more topics because this episode really did hit on so many things. So main feeders, thank you for listening. We'll we'll be back. I think these are going to come out every couple weeks or so. So we'll be back in two weeks with episode three. And if you want to hear the rest, you can head over to the Patreon feed. Mm -hmm.